0: Well, good morning. Welcome to Aletheia Church. Uh, My name is Kevin. I am one of the pastors here. Glad to have you with us this morning. Uh, Parents of elementary school age kids, if you want to dismiss your children now uh, to the back, their teachers will be back there to take them away um, to their time this morning uh, in Aletheia Junior. Um, If this is your first Sunday with us and you have not yet had the opportunity to grab a scripture journal and you would like one, just raise your hand. Uh, We'll have one of our volunteers just bring those around to you. That's our free gift to you. Uh, We study the books of the Bible together here at Aletheia Church, and so we've been going through the Gospel of John since January. And so um, we would just ask that you would bring it back with you uh, if you come back in a future week. Uh, But just keep your hands raised and we'll bring one around to you uh, if you would like one. Uh, Go ahead and turn over to John chapter 15. That's where we're going to be this morning. We're going to be looking at the first 17 verses that Mitchell just read for us. and, and before we dive into those verses, I think for those of you guys that may not have been here before, or you've missed, or you're, you're, you're getting caught up to where we are in the course of John's gospel, um, we, we need to understand these 17 verses in light of uh, what's been going on in John's narrative up until uh, this point. So just a, a real quick recap of where we are right now in John's gospel. Um, Jesus' public ministry is now finished. And everything we've been seeing since about chapter 12 uh, or towards the end of chapter 12 has been uh, Jesus spending his final evening with his disciples. Um, and specifically chapters 13 through about 17 are often called the upper room discourse uh, where Jesus is uh, spending time with his disciples, preparing them um, for his impending crucifixion and resurrection. Uh Even though they've spent three years with Jesus and Jesus has on a number of occasions tried to prepare them for uh, him leaving, his departure, uh, they don't get it. And so uh, here we have in John's account, his remembrance of that final evening with Jesus. And we've seen as we've been studying the last several chapters that Jesus is teaching them. We've also seen over the course of the last two weeks Uh, that he's trying to encourage them to understand um, what awaits them once he has faced his crucifixion, his resurrection, and then his ascension into heaven. And what we saw uh, two weeks ago was Jesus prepared them for this future, far-off, distant reality of once they were dead themselves, what awaited them in glory for eternity. That Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. So he's giving them this future hope of what life will look like for them in eternity. That what Jesus is about to accomplish in his resurrection and his crucifixion and his ascension is far greater than anything that they could imagine. It's even far greater than the messianic hope that they had as Jews for the overthrow of the Roman government and a kingdom without end, that the true kingdom without end is in glory for eternity with our Heavenly Father. And so Jesus prepares them by saying, I have to go before you to prepare a place for you. Then last week, Jesus begins to encourage them to be prepared for what life is going to look like on earth without him that he's going to go before them to prepare this future place, but that there is a reality that they must face life as his disciples without him being physically present with them. And he encouraged them that the helper was going to come to be with them. He encouraged them to love him by being obedient to his word. And then he encouraged them, as we saw towards the end of our time last week in John 14, to rest in a number of promises that he makes to them. And so when we get to our text this morning, Jesus is continuing this theme of trying to prepare his disciples for his departure. And one. this is one of the most famous passages in all of Scripture. Even if you didn't grow up in the church, you likely probably have heard this passage at some point in time or or are familiar with it in some way, shape, or form. And to be perfectly honest with you, I could spend a number of sermons unpacking different themes that we see in John chapter 15. I mean, some of the themes of this famous passage are about love, about the mission of God's people, about the relation of good works to our salvation and what God might ask of us. Um, he talks about the goal of discipleship and why God saves his people in the first place. Uh, we could unpack this concept of idea of what it means to be in friendship with Jesus if you are his disciple. Um, we could even, if we wanted to really nerd out, talk about Jesus' relation with the covenants and, and what he's talking about here. And some of you guys are like, what are you talking about? Yep, just keep it there for now at the moment. We could even talk about Jesus' relationship to Israel. And what that looks like now. Like I said, there's a lot here. And we're going to attempt to touch on a couple of these things this morning as we make our way through the text. But I think it's most appropriate for us to focus on three separate things that are kind of like big picture ideas that Jesus points out to us uh, in in this statement or in this discourse this morning. And so we're just going to look at three things, and that's kind of how we break down our time in the text this morning. The first thing we're going to see is Jesus' statement that I am the true vine. And what we'll hope to do is bring some understanding to the metaphor that Jesus is using here. Then we're going to talk about abiding in the vine. We're going to talk about how... the the reality for Christian is that there is an importance for us to actively participate in intimate and ongoing communion with Jesus. And that that doesn't need to be some far-off ephemeral idea, but that it can actually be something the people of God experience on a daily basis. And then lastly, we're going to talk about this concept of fruitfulness. Because Jesus says that those that abide in Him, that if we are abiding in the true vine, that our walk as Christians is not just some personal, private matter that serves us as mere personal fulfillment, but that abiding in Christ should and will lead to a productive and fruitful lifestyle to the glory of God and our good. And so let's start unpacking these first couple verses where we see Jesus make this statement in John 15 starting in verse 1. Jesus says, "I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit he prunes that it may bear more." fruit. Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Okay, so let's just pause there for a second and try to unpack a little bit what Jesus is saying to his disciples. So, first of all, first of all, this is the last of 7 I am statements that Jesus makes in the Gospel of John. And each I am statement is designed to reveal something to us about Jesus and who he is so that we might know him more fully and come to worship him and understand who he truly is. So for example, we saw chapters back, Jesus claimed that he he says, I am the light of the world. And in making that statement, what Jesus is proclaiming to his disciples and those that are around him, he says, I have been sent by the father to shine a light on sin. And in shining a light on that sin, I am here and sent by God to reveal to you the truth of who God is and what his plan of redemption has been since the beginning of time. Basically, he says, hey, there's a lot of darkness surrounding mankind, specifically in regards to sin, and I am here to shine a light on it so you might see it fully and have it revealed to you. He says later on in the Gospel of John, we just saw this in chapter 14, he said to his disciples, I am the way and the truth and the life, and none come to the Father except through me. And in that I am statement, Jesus is saying that he is the only means by which a human being can get to their creator. He says that all that he says to them is true, and there is no life now or in eternity apart from him. And so he makes these really definitive statements about who he is. But in making these statements, he's revealing uh, pictures and pieces of his character so that we might know him more fully and come to worship him. And so when we get to the I am statement here in John 15, Jesus is actually using an agricultural reference to illustrate a truth to us about who he is, who the father is. And if you'll notice in the the metaphor, who we are. He says, I, Jesus, am the true vine. And we'll unpack that a little bit more here in just a second. But he compares himself to a vine. And he says his father, God the Father, is a vine dresser. And if you don't know what a vine dresser is, just think gardener, farmer, vineyard owner, along those lines. That he's the owner of the vineyard. And therefore the, the, the one who planted the vine. And then he says that he... That, that we, excuse me, are the branches of the true vine. This is just referring to those that would call themselves or label themselves as disciples of Jesus. And vineyards are used several times as parables in the Gospels, but the, the idea of using a vineyard to illustrate a point inside of Scripture is used all over the place, especially in the Old Testament, and what it often does when we look back in the Old Testament is that the illustration of a vineyard is used to describe for us Israel and its relationship to God. It's to help Israel understand how they might relate with God. If, if you will, turn over to uh, Psalm chapter eighty with me, real quick. I could have given us a number of references in the Old Testament to examples of where a vineyard and a vine is used to describe Israel and and how it relates to God. But I want to just point this one out because I think uh, Jesus actually might even have this particular section of Scripture on his mind when he's sharing this I am statement with his disciples. If you look starting in verse 7 of Psalm chapter 80, look what the psalmist says. They cry out, restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. You brought, and look at this, a vine out of Egypt. So abundantly clear if you're even remotely familiar with the history of God's people. Uh, God brought Israel out of Egypt and started them. And so the psalmist is comparing them to a vine brought out of Egypt. He says, you drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shades, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it and all that move in the field feed on it. So you can see that the psalmist is in a particular moment in the history of Israel where he's recalling that God saved Israel, pulled them out of Egypt and then blessed them and planted them in the Holy Land. And as he did that, Israel expanded, they bore fruit, people came to know God, people came to worship him and things were great. And then all of a sudden it wasn't happening anymore. It's talking about people pillaging the fruit and the vine being tattered or beaten up. And what we know from Israeli history is that actually became a reality because Israel refused to follow God the way that they had told him to. And so the suffering and the persecution and the conquering that they experienced over the course of their history was because they stopped bearing fruit and keeping with God and his commandments. And so we get to this point in verse 13 where the psalmist is just crying out, Lord, things are so terrible for us as your vine. Please help us. And then he says this, starting in verse 14. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face, but let your hand be on the man of your right hand. The son of man, whom you have made strong for yourself. Um, Jesus uses that term to describe himself regularly in the gospels. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. So here we see in Psalm 80, this illustration of a vineyard that was planted by God out of Egypt. The the vine has lost its way. It's not producing any fruit any longer. And the psalmist cries out to God for the vine to be restored and that for this son of man to come and protect it and take care of it and replant it. It was once a beautiful vine, but has now been broken down. And God cries out, excuse me, this man cries out to God, send the son of man to rescue And restore us. See, God's judgment had been brought on the vine because God's people had refused to bear fruit the way in which He had covenanted with them to do so. And what Jesus is saying here, as He calls Himself the true vine, is He He's saying, "I am all that Israel could not be." I have come to fulfill all that Israel was supposed to fulfill as God's people. I have come to obey God. I have come to herald the kingdom of good news. I have come to tell the world of of God and what he has done for them. I have come to reveal to the world their need of repentance and forgiveness of sin. All things that Israel was supposed to do as God's people and yet had failed because of their sin. And this is why he says, I am. I am the true vine. I am what Israel is not, faithful and obedient. And the reason why a vine is used as an illustration so often by God to describe this is because if you understand agriculture at all, vines are the source of nourishment and life from which the branches shoot off and produce fruit. And Israel had once produced fruit, but no longer is. And Jesus, as the true vine and the Son of Man, is claiming the vine is now here, the source of true nourishment and life that a disciple must be tapped into has arrived. Be grafted into me and bear fruit, for there is no other vine. And this may seem odd for us because most of us in here probably are not culturally uh, and culturally or historically Jewish by heritage. But what Jesus is saying here is actually a pretty radical statement. right? To tell a group of Jewish men and women, hey, I'm actually the true vine, the way in which you get to God, not your cultural heritage through Abraham, is a big deal. Right? He is the long-awaited fulfillment of the covenant to Abraham. But what he's saying to them is, the mere fact that you were born Jewish is not what grafts you into the vine. It is faith in Christ, and as we'll see in just a moment, and abiding in him that one bears fruit for their creator. And so this would have been a pretty radical moment for Jesus' disciples as they sat there. And he goes on to say that his heavenly father is the vine dresser. And that as the vine dresser or the owner of the vineyard, he takes away branches that aren't bearing fruit because they aren't true believers. And those that are believers, that are bearing fruit, he actually prunes the branch back so that it might bear more fruit. And just as a quick Side note on that for you here this morning, if you are a follower of Jesus, right? The promise of God to you is that if you are abiding in Christ and growing in the vine, not that you might be pruned, but you will be pruned. And for any of you guys that have ever done any sort of gardening or anything like that, right? Whenever you cut back a tree, it usually struggles for a short period of time, but then it grows in more fully. It takes care of the dead branches. The tree has less to take care of. And then what grows in is a more full, healthy, and fruitful plant or tree. And what Jesus is promising here is that through trials and difficulty and suffering, God uses those in the life of a believer to prune them so that they might bear fruit for his glory and his good. But this also means that God is constantly at work in the life of a Christian. So that you may bear more fruit. Which means you have purpose. That God created mankind in his image and likeness to bear his image and bear fruit for him. This means that all that you say and do matters in this life. We have this propensity as humans to make and distinguish um, different areas or compartmentalize our lives into what we might call sacred and secular. Oh, like I go to my Bible study or I'm involved with my campus ministry or I have my Christian Businessmen's Association or I come to church or I'm involved in missions. And we view those things as spiritual things, things unto God, but we don't view work or school or friendships or even taking care of ourselves with the way that we eat or the way that we exercise or the way that we go to bed on time. By claiming that God is constantly working on the vine and pruning branches, God is saying, I care deeply about every aspect of your life and I am pruning you so that you might bear fruit. And a tree that bears fruit is healthy and therefore it is good for God to be doing these things in your life because he's taking you from a place of self-inflicted low health to a place of health and joy in Christ. And just as Adam and Eve walked with God in the garden so that they might know Him, abide in Him, rest in Him, and bear fruit and having dominion over the garden in the way that God would want them to. So God is doing this now through His people, through the true vine, Jesus Christ. And just in case and I know this is our tendency, we read this and we hear that we're supposed to bear fruit and that God is working this out, immediately what our propensity is to do is to immediately run to, oh, well, I'm not doing a very good job of that. If I was fruit, I'd throw it away. I wouldn't eat it. Spoiled and rotten, the fruit flies are in it. Right? And we immediately start examining ourselves and wondering if we're really in the vine and and what's going on. And look at what is said, though, by Jesus in verse 3, already you are clean because of the word I've spoken to you. He knows he's getting ready to use an illustration here and that there might be a part of this illustration that confuses his disciples and makes, it, makes them start to believe that their works are what earn them a place in the vine. And he says, whoa, 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 just so we're clear, because of the words I've spoken to you and because you believed in me, you're already clean, you're in the vine. Now we're talking about what life is going to look like for you once I'm gone. And how you're supposed to live this out. And the call for those that are branches in the true vine is to bear fruit. And so that inevitably leads to the question, and so Jesus is going to answer it in the course of this discourse, is how? How does one bear fruit for God if it's not about our works? And this is where we get to the second thing that we notice in Jesus' discourse. We are called to abide in him. Look at what he says, starting in verse 4. He says, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. So Jesus seems to anticipate this question from his disciples. How will we bear fruit without you being here? How will we do it? How can we do that without our teacher, without our leader, the guy who constantly is correcting us when we make mistakes, when we fail in ministry, who comes in and cleans up the mess? How are we supposed to do that without your presence here, Jesus? And Jesus says, abide. Now that word in the Greek is the Greek word meno. And it means to remain. It means to dwell or to to live, to, to not change. And so to carry forward this illustration that Jesus is using of a vineyard and a vine, Jesus is calling his disciples to put down roots, knowing that no good that they can do can be done apart from Jesus. And it begins by remaining in the words that he has shared with them and believing in him. For example, to even believe in what he said back in chapter 14, that he's going before them to prepare a place for them. To love him by obeying his commands. To rest in the promises that he's given them, that the helper's going to come and assist them and teach them and cause them to remember all that he has said to them. That even when they look out over their life and over the landscape of what's going on and they can't see much good, they continue to remain and hope in Jesus because that's what they were created to do. Because they cannot produce fruit apart from a vine. The true vine, Jesus Christ. And let me just pause here for a second and make a pretty emphatic statement to you. If what Jesus is saying to his disciples here is true, and it is, This means that there is no such thing as Lone Ranger Christianity. I think one of the biggest lies I see in culture right now is people saying, well, I love Jesus, or I want to walk with him and walk with God, but I don't need to be a part of the church. And I'm going to show us here in just a minute how vital being a part of church community is. But to be grafted into the vine means the branches are a part of the vine, meaning you must be a part of the whole thing. And this means that we, as the body of Christ, if you are a professing disciple of Jesus this morning, are, should be involved in a local church. And that by definition, you are also a part of the big C corporate church that gathers worldwide. The visible church that gathers to make much of Jesus. And this morning, all over the world, we've got brothers and sisters of all sorts of tribes, nations, and tongues who gather together to do the exact same thing we do, which is remember and worship and thank God for what He has done for us. And there's something deeply missing about that if you intentionally disconnect yourself from the body of Christ. I remember when I played sports growing up as a kid, and I played football, and you could probably imagine there wasn't a whole lot of playing going on, but more watching from the sidelines, just from my size. Force equals mass times acceleration over and over and over again, right? So it didn't matter how much I could lift or how fast I was, mass lost every time to more mass. But one of the things that I I learned while playing football was that while 11 people were on the field, if there was one person on the field that wanted to do their own thing and not do their job, everyone else suffered for it. And oftentimes, the person trying to do their own thing didn't accomplish what they were after either. And so it is in the body of Christ. And I, look, I, I know some of you might even be a little frustrated with me right now because you're like, you don't know what the church has done to me. You know, it's like, I hear you, like, Everyone in this room is a sinner who is more than capable of hurting and harming you in some way, shape, or form. I think the important thing for us to remember, though, when we face those realities as Christians, is we are just as capable of doing the same thing to someone else. And that that person is in in need of the same repentance, mercy, and forgiveness that God extends to you. And if you disconnect yourself from the body of Christ we don't allow the opportunity for reconciliation and restoration that Jesus brings. And it has been my experience that those that disconnect themselves from the body of Christ don't stay walking with Christ in the long term. They don't. At least not abundantly and joyfully and bearing fruit and what Jesus is saying in this illustration here is abide in me because there is no such thing as lone ranger christianity. Now this word abide inevitably is going to bring up right like some difficulty of like what specifically does Jesus mean by abiding? Like how do I do that? What does that mean? John Piper puts it this way. He says abiding means hour by hour trusting Jesus to meet all your needs and to be all your treasure. And practically, I think that can play itself out this way, right? Pastor Eric Reed of Journey Church in Tennessee says that there are kind of three ways that we can practically practice abiding in Christ. The first one is that we abide by walking in faith. This means that we preach the gospel to ourselves. This is why when if you've spent any length of time at Aletheia Church, you've heard us use language like gospel centrality, or we want to be a gospel-centered church. And what we mean by that is not a buzzword, but this. We believe that the good news of what Christ has done, both is the starting point for Christianity, where we believe and trust that Jesus died for our sins and we are forgiven because of the finished work of Jesus and are now adopted as sons and daughters of God. But we also believe that that good news is not just the start of our life with God, but it fuels our entire lives as we continue to walk with him. Because as someone who's been walking with Jesus now for almost 19 years, I need the grace and mercy of God just as much as I did almost 19 years ago. I need the grace and mercy and forgiveness of Jesus. And when I fail... I don't need to pick myself back up by my bootstraps. I need to know that I'm forgiven and loved, and because I am, I can move forward. And so we practically abide in Christ by walking in faith and preaching the good news of what Christ has done for us. We also abide by spending time focused on Him. And this one, admittedly, is the most difficult one for me. This means that you are intentional throughout your day to focus and remember and recenter where God is at work in your day. I'm terrible at this. Right? It's why sometimes like you guys will come up and ask Jackie and I how we're doing and you'll say, like, what's God doing? And I'm like, great question. Haven't thought about that yet. Just kind of been functioning. Just doing my thing. And when you stop and consider and think, there's no area of your life where God is not at work. And if you're not intentional about stopping and resting, turning off the podcast, turning off Netflix, turning off the game, turning off your to-do list, and just looking to see where God might be at work, you miss this. And you start to believe you're functioning on your own, and you're not. Because God has sent the helper to be with you. The third way you can practically abide is by engaging in intentional actions. And this is a plethora of things that you could be doing. could include reading scripture, praying, fighting sin, being in community, sharing your faith caring for another, serving. The the list is almost endless of things you could be doing to be intentional, but they're intentional actions because God has commanded them. And by doing them, you then get to see His faithfulness in the midst of it. Abiding is the implication of a branch being in the vine. it tells us that if we are abiding in Christ, that you are here, not by your own effort, but through faith in Christ, trusting in Jesus, drinking in Jesus, and knowing that like a branch receives all that it needs from the vine, so you receive all that you need in life from Jesus. And Jesus says to his disciples, look, I know I'm leaving, but I am the true vine. And just because I'm not going to be physically present does not mean that you cannot abide in me. Abide in me by walking in faith and preaching to yourself what I've preached to you. Abide in me by focusing on what I am doing in your life and abide in me by engaging in intentional actions of obedience and love towards me and towards others. And I will sustain you and you will bear fruit. Which if we're honest, isn't that what we all want? We want a life that matters. We want a life of purpose. I've never once met a student coming into the University of Florida. So I love you guys. Because every time I, I meet a freshman, I'm like, hey, I'm Kevin, what are you studying? And it's always this, I'm studying this, and then whatever 10-minute story you tell me about how you're going to change the world through your major. And I, I love it. My university was not that way. People were like, I'm here to party. Whew, all right, some plan, man. Right? Every U.S. student, I mean, it's like, I'm going to be a nurse, and I'm going to save lives as a nurse. Some of you guys, I'm gonna be an engineer and as boring as that is, sorry engineers. See, there it is. There's so many of you, like you need my validation. I'm gonna save the world one bridge at a time or one, one line of bad computer software programming at a time. By the way, if you've ever been in a, a developing country we are blessed to have engineers, guys. They make life way better. Go to any international airport, I promise you. I mean, there's some in the U.S. that need more engineers, too, or better ones. Some of you guys are like, I'm going to be a doctor. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to get into research and find cures for cancer. But all of us, even, I even love meeting people that want to stay at home, like stay-at-home moms, and they want to invest in their kids and love them and prepare them for life. And that is honorable and has purpose, because all of us are seeking to live a life full of purpose. And Jesus is saying to his disciples, you will have purpose, you matter, because you will bear fruit as long as you are abiding in me, the true vine. which inevitably leads to the question, then well, what does that fruit look like? What does it mean to bear fruit? And that's what Jesus spends the remainder of his time in these verses saying. So five examples of fruitfulness that Jesus shares with his disciples for those that abide in Christ. The first one is in verses seven and eight. He talks about effective prayer. He says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Now, I fear here that as I say uh, that those that abide in Christ experience effective prayer and fruit from that, that what you hear is this, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. And then you just stop there. You're like, yes, the Tesla is coming. Just need to ask. And God will bear fruit. But what Jesus is actually saying here is as you abide in him, and notice he says this, and his words in you, you will want what God wants to do in your life, not what you want to do with your life. And your prayers will change from being self-centered and self-focused to God-centered and others-focused. doesn't mean you don't pray for yourself. But it means the sole purpose and focus of what you desire out of life is not self-centered anymore, but it's God, His glory, and His kingdom. And your prayers change to asking Him to provide so that you might bear fruit for Him. And let me tell you something, guys. God is all too eager to answer that prayer. He is so ready for you to pray prayers of faith that will lead you to bear fruit for others' good and His glory. And as he provides, the Father is glorified. Because then you're able to say, yeah, I prayed for this thing. I've been been praying for my dad for years. And guess what? He he came to Christ. He loves Jesus now. His his eternity is forever changed and altered. Some of you in this room this morning who are walking with Jesus are here because of the faithful prayers of other people in your life. God bears fruit through them. The second thing he shares is that another example of fruitfulness for those who abide in Christ is that we experience an increasing obedience to Jesus's commands. Exactly what he told us to do in chapter fourteen. Right? Look at verse ten. It says, "If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love." It's like it's like this interesting relationship between obedience and love he's like if if you're abiding in christ right seeing jesus as the chief treasure and provider in your life then you love him and if you love him you're going to want to obey him but as you grow to obey him more you love him more one of the things that i've experienced in my own life and one thing i would encourage you to do if you're a younger christian in here this morning is find an older christian Ask to take them out to coffee or get lunch or dinner with them sometime and just ask them to share how they have seen how increased obedience in their life has led them to a greater love for Jesus and more growth and more fruit. It's one of the, the, the most fascinating things is things that I thought in the past that God was withholding and trying to hold out on me on. As I obeyed him, I realized actually he wasn't withholding. It wasn't for my good and he actually loved me. It's, it kind of works this way. Right? young kids don't make great dietary decisions most of the time. My sister's diet as a child was hot dogs, peas, macaroni and cheese, and chicken nuggets. Fascinating, right? The four major food groups. Right? And my parents were always making her eat other things, and she thought my parents were like the most evil and wicked people on the planet. I Like dinner every time was terrible for everyone. But my parents loved her enough to give her, teach her, and point her in a direction of what was good for her. That's exactly what God's commands are for us. That he knows what is for our good and best joy in this life. And so we abide in him and we experience fruit by increasingly growing in obedience to him and his word. The third way we experience fruitfulness through abiding in Christ is by an increased experience of Jesus' joy. Look at verse 11. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Just think about that for a minute. Jesus is telling his disciples, who are getting ready to lose their king, their teacher, the one that they've placed their hope and trust in, hey, if you abide in me, you're going to experience my joy. Now, what is that? What is Jesus' joy? Turn over to Hebrews chapter 12 with me. Look at what the author of Hebrews says in verses 1 and 2 of Hebrews chapter 12. He says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. That's another way of saying abiding in Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus is saying to his disciples here, hey, I want you to experience my joy. You know what my joy is? I derive joy in honoring my heavenly father and saving you. That's what brings him joy, is seeing you love his heavenly father and obeying his heavenly father. And he endured the shame of the cross to do so. It's it's crazy, right? Like what, what Jesus is saying here is, I want to give you a joy that you cannot understand or comprehend. I want you to lose things that you thought were the most important thing in your life, but you experience satisfaction in knowing who I am and that you have purpose, that you don't care about those things anymore. A Christian that abides in Christ experiences an increasing joy because as they partner with the church, the body of Christ, as they pray effective prayers, as they obey Jesus more, they experience the exact same thing Jesus did, which is more people coming to know him and knowing their heavenly father. The fourth way that we bear fruit, verses 12 through 13, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. He says, a mark of a Christian who's bearing more fruit is that they increasingly love God's people. Love is not an emotion. It's a verb. And to love your brothers and sisters in Christ means you imitate Jesus' love by laying down your life. Now, you may not be asked to actually physically lay down your life. But you may be asked to lay down your preferences. You may be asked to lay down your desires. And if laying down your preferences and desires will lead to loving someone else well and bearing fruit, I promise you it's worth it. Ask any married couple that's achieved any level of success in their marriage over any period of time, and they will tell you that's exactly how it works. And by the way, marriages usually that aren't working super well are two people that aren't willing to lay down their preferences. Last, the last way we bear fruit, according to Jesus, by abiding in him is in verse 16 that will be witnesses to the world. Look at what he says. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give to you. Right? So Jesus is like, hey, I know how you guys are. You're going to start looking at yourself and you're like, I'm bearing fruit. Look how great I am. Just remember, it's the vine that's doing the work, not you. You're just pulling out everything you need from me. You bear fruit because of me. But bear more fruit. And bear that fruit both personally in a transformed life and externally in sharing the good news with others about what Christ has done for them. Meaning, A disciple of Jesus who is abiding in Christ and bearing fruit doesn't keep their faith just inside of them. They share it with others. They share it through the testimony of the way they live their life. They share it in the actions and the way that they serve others. And they share it in the way in which they proclaim the good news of what Christ has done. It's not just one. It's not just two. It's all three of those things. And so here's, I think, the question to take away from our text this morning are you abiding in the true vine maybe life seems hard this morning maybe you're in a, a season of suffering and difficulty maybe maybe you feel like life is going nowhere and you're in despair And I would submit that maybe one of the reasons life might be so difficult right now is because you are like a branch that has been stuck in the ground with no root or vine to be connected to. And Jesus' invitation to you is come, be clean, be grafted in. Come, abide in me, believe in me, trust in me, and I will provide for you. Come, grow in my words. Come, have purpose and bear fruit. For my Heavenly Father. Because maybe you grew up in the church and you knew some things about Jesus and you might even be able to give a gospel presentation but you've never fully placed your trust in Christ. And you feel like you don't bear fruit because you don't. Because there is no fruit apart from abiding in the true vine. And once you Trust in Him and are grafted in and abide in the vine. Life gets infinitely better. And it also becomes very difficult. Because God the Father is going to prune you so that you might grow even more. And as you grow more, you experience joy and love for one another, growing in obedience towards Jesus and His words. The power of vibrant and effective prayer as you witness to others, Jesus is calling all of us to abide in him today. If you're not a Christian, to move from a dead branch to a branch that has been grafted in and alive. And if you are a Christian, to begin actively working out abiding in him placing your trust in Him, doing those things that I mentioned earlier, believing the gospel by preaching it to yourself daily, being intentional to be aware of where He is at work in you and around you, and living life intentionally to stir up your affections toward Jesus and to love others. Friends, if we became a church that made it our chief goal to abide in Christ, we would change the world. And when I say change the world, I mean your life would be transformed, but others around you would as well. And here's how I know that to be true. Because you are here this morning because faithful men and women over the course of the last 2,000 years chose to abide in Christ. We are some of the fruit of their faithfulness, which was ultimately rooted in God's faithfulness to them. And if we abide and remain, generations of people after us will know the love of God and trust in Christ, the true vine.